shaken me, but there were times in my life way back in the past where it probably did. Um, an example of that would be in Matthew chapter 7, yeah. um, where Jesus says, uh, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and we drove out demons and we did miracles in your name? Um, but then but then Jesus mm. kind of responds and he says, I'll tell you plainly, this is my opinion of you. And he says, I never mm. knew you. Get away from me, you evildoers. Mm. Um, you know, if we don't understand the context into which Jesus speaks, um, it will leave you with fear and doubt. Now, when all is said and done, um, when we stand before God at the end of our, our earthly life, are we going to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, or are we going to hear words like that, depart from me, I never knew you? And many Christians around the world live with that low-grade nagging doubt um, and it leaves them afraid to come near to God. Um, non-believers hold God off at arm's length, but many Christians do too because they're, they're fearful of God. They're afraid of a God who they perceive to be angry and vengeful. And that's why understanding context is so very, very important. I keep saying that over and over again. Understanding who is saying it, who they're saying it to, um, why are they saying it? Um, because everything needs to be read through the filter and through the lens of the new covenant, through the lens of the cross, through Jesus. Because if it's not, you'll come out the other side with uh, a wrong interpretation and a wrong perspective. And so today I want to deal with a verse of scripture that has, I think over the years, had a lot of people quite confused. And it's some words that Jesus himself spoke. Um, that has resulted in a number of different theological ideas being developed and, and taught, which has caught some con caused some confusion. It's, it's caused some people to doubt how powerful the cross really is and to question God's grace towards them. Um, we're going to read some verses out of Luke 23. So if, you want, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. But before we read that, I want to, I want to ask you a question. And this is where I'd love us. I wish we were all together for this because I love to get some answers and interaction. But um, what do you think God's greatest act of love was? Uh, I think his greatest act of sovereignty was to give us free will. But what was his greatest act of love? Uh, probably most of us would come up with the same answer and, and we would we would note a scripture for it. It would be John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's greatest act of love, send Jesus to the earth to, do, to die for us, to, to go to Calvary. Jesus' greatest act of love was to come and to give his life. Um, but when did God express that love? Romans 5 verse 8 says that he demonstrated that love while we were still sinners. He didn't wait for us to get good. He didn't wait for us to try and improve ourselves and get holy enough or deserve Jesus to come. No, while we were dead in sin, he came and made us alive in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.19, um, we looked at this on Wednesday night. God reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. And so God looks down upon the earth. He looks upon 
this 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 wretchedness of our of our sinful state, and He comes to rescue us and to save us. Didn't wait for us to get good enough. He came when we were at our lowest. Um, and so I want to look at at this portion of scripture, Luke twenty three, that that has people perplexed a little bit. And you find this in all the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. Um, but we'll read from we'll read a portion of scripture from Luke and then from Matthew okay. as well. So Luke twenty three and verse uh, thirty three. It says, when they came to the place called the skull, they were crucified with him, along with the criminals, one uh, on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. People stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others, then let him save himself if he is the Christ of, of God, the chosen one. The soldiers came up and they mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, if you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. And there was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Uh, Jesus goes on. He has a conversation with the two criminals, one either side of them. Um, but those incredible words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Um but in many respects, they knew what they were doing. I mean, the Jewish authorities, they knew exactly what they were doing. The Roman soldiers knew what they were doing. The crowd that had called, crucify him, and then called for the called for the release of Barabbas, they knew exactly what they were doing. And yet Jesus says they didn't know. Um, and yet it was true because they didn't know. They didn't recognize who Jesus really was. They didn't recognize that he was truly the son of God. Paul writes in, First uh, Corinthians 2, I think it is, and he says, uh, the rulers of this age would not have crucified the Lord of glory if they had understood who he was. Not even the devil would have stirred up the, the hatred and the anger against Jesus if he understood what was going to transpire at the cross. And so I think they're amazing words that Jesus spoke. Forgive them despite what they're doing. Don't hold it against them. Uh, they're incredibly comforting words for you and I because um, even when we sin, God's forgiveness is always there. You know, we don't always know what we've done. We don't always know how damaging it can be. We don't really know the depth of grief that, that the Father feels and how it affects him when we sin. And, and, and so when we forget to ask for forgiveness, he's already forgiven us. And, and that's the good news of the gospel. That's what John writes. He says, if we sin, if we sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Um, and his, so his blood forever speaks on our behalf so that even when we forget to say, even when we forget to recognize or acknowledge that we've sinned, God's already forgiven us for it. And that's, that's the good news of the gospel, folks. And so I just want to say don't ever fall into the lie that God won't or can't forgive your sin unless you ask for forgiveness, unless you're continually forgiving others. Folks, that's just so, it's not true under the new covenant. It doesn't give us an excuse to never acknowledge sin or to just ignore it, um, but it takes away the fear of judgment and the fear of not measuring up. The blood of Jesus is far more powerful than your sin can ever be. And it's speaking for you all the time. 
Jesus has that conversation with the two thieves. One insults Jesus, one mocks him, tells him to save himself. Um, and that's typical of the world today. There's always projecting blame onto someone else, expecting someone else to fix it. Um, but the other thief recognises Jesus as innocent. And, uh, and Jesus responds to him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that's all it takes for people to be saved. It's an acceptance of who Jesus is, a receiving of his grace and his sacrifice on their, their behalf. And that's, that's the good news of the gospel. But then Jesus says something that is really astounding. And, and this is what I want to look at today. Um, and we'll read this from Matthew 27 because it just brings that a little bit clearer. Matthew 27 and verse 46, it says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And it says, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those nine words have caused a lot of confusion and a lot of argument and a lot of theological debate ever since. The Amplified Bible uh, Young's Literal Translation and quite a number of others um, actually use the word abandon. My God, why have you abandoned me? In fact, one translation uses the word rejected. God, why have you rejected me? And that's the idea that many people are then left with, that God somehow rejected or abandoned Jesus. In fact, there's a whole uh, teaching uh, from, from one particular group who, who, who are passionate about saying God killed Jesus, that God killed Jesus, that in his anger and his wrath and his need for vengeance was so intense that he killed Jesus because of sin. So where do those kind of ideas come from? Where, where does this idea that God abandoned Jesus and he rejected him or he turned his face away from him? Well, it, well, it comes from just one verse in the Old Testament which is in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, which says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And so uh, some translations talk about God turning his face from Jesus, um, or turning his face away from sin because he cannot cope with looking at sin. And so we have this idea, God cannot bear to look upon sin. He's too pure. He's too holy. He cannot lower himself to look upon any form of sin. Um, and, and since all of mankind's sin for all of time was, was bundled up and placed on Jesus, then God could no longer look at Jesus, turned his face from him. In that moment, he abandoned him and he rejected him because of sin. And that, it sounds plausible. It almost sounds theological. After all, how could a holy God allow himself to, to see sin, um, not just a little sin, but all of sin for all time, for all mankind, all put together on one person at one point in time. And so it sounds right, you know. Um, and I, like many of others, uh, had agreed with that view for quite a while until I began to understand God's grace. Because if that was true, God couldn't bear to look at his own son, then that has severe ramifications for you and I. 
it causes for me some theological problems. Um, not only that, but it can leave you with those nagging doubts. You know, will God abandon me one day? Could God reject me? Could God forsake me? If I slip up bad enough, could God then reject me? Could, could he somehow turn his face away from me? Except, again, context is very important. You need to understand that that one verse in Habakkuk is he is expressing his sense of confusion about evil in the world. And he's giving his own opinion about how he thinks God responds. He's not giving God's actual explanation. He's not giving God's response. He's, 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 he's not giving God's own explanation of where and where he can look and where he cannot look. Um, and so we've got, we've got this picture. Here's Jesus on the cross. He's in pain. He's suffocating, literally suffocating under the weight of his own body, which is what crucifixion did. People would die from asphyxiation primarily because they couldn't breathe. And so he's struggling to get a few words out and, and, he, and he utters these words, this line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was Jesus actually saying? We are actually quoting from Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 verse 1 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Jesus was actually quoting a prophetic psalm that was written about the coming Messiah. It was written about him. Now, remember, most of the people who were there at the crucifixion, they were watching, most of them were Jews. They're the priests, they're the Jewish high council, they're the disciples there. There were other Jewish people, including the crowd that had called for his crucifixion. And they all knew the scriptures and they knew this psalm. They knew it was a prophetic psalm about Jesus. And so as soon as Jesus quotes the first verse of this psalm, they all know what he's saying. He's speaking about the Messiah. So if you look at the rest of that psalm, um, we'll read a few more verses in it. Verse 14 says this. Think about this. Think about Jesus on the cross and listen to these words. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. Listen, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And that's exactly what was happening at the cross. It's exactly what happened to Jesus. And so when Jesus begins this quote, when he quotes that first verse, they know that he's referring to the Messiah. And they could see this is exactly what was happening to him on the cross. Jesus was quoting this verse because he wasn't quoting it because God had rejected him. He was quoting this verse because he was wanting to draw their attention to who he was, that he was the one they had rejected. So it wasn't a case of God turning away and abandoning Jesus. 
it was they who had abandoned him. So I want to give us just four truths that I believe are just going to be liberating, going to help set people free, going to break off that sense of, of, you know, that doubt, is God going to abandon me one day? God always looks and God always loves. God always looks and God always loves, irrespective of sin. Now, when Adam and Eve uh, sinned against God, who was it who turned away? God comes down to see Adam and to talk with him just as he did every other day. It was Adam who ran away. It was Adam who turned away because of sin. It wasn't God. God came looking for them despite their sin. It was God's first act of grace towards them. And instead of turning his back on them, he came seeking them. But this this idea that God cannot look on sin because he's so weak, because if he looked on it, it will somehow defile him. It's just utter nonsense. If God was able to, if God was unable um, to bear evil, to look upon it, then Adam and Eve would have immediately been abandoned. Instead, God comes down from heaven to seek and to save them. And that's the gospel. Um, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't avoid sinners. Rather, Jesus came and he healed them. He touched them. He taught them. He ate with them. He he spent his life with them. He cast demons out of them. He set them free. He discipled them. Um, he, he, this holy one, Jesus, comes and he touches the unclean and he, and he, and he makes them clean. Like if God couldn't look upon sin, then the incarnation couldn't even take place. Because he loves us, not only could Jesus look at sin, he wore it, he absorbed it for us. He paid for the failings of all humanity. And so it isn't God turning away from Jesus. It's not God turning away from us. It's actually man turning away from God. And it's not always um, in some rebellious, arrogant move because um, it's, it's also quite often because unredeemed man simply cannot look upon holiness. You know, it happened to Isaiah. Isaiah sees the majesty of God and he turns away and he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he feels his own unworthiness. Daniel sees the holiness of God and he falls down. Um, and so when we see our own sinful state and then we compare that to the holiness of God, we struggle to look at him unless, unless you have a revelation that you've been made righteous, that you've been clothed with his righteousness then you can have a confidence and you can look right into his eyes knowing that you're one with him. Remember, Jesus was fully man. He was always God, but he was fully man. And so just imagine, these are the words of a man in distress. And and that's important to understand. That as Jesus took upon his body, the sin of the whole world. For the first time ever, he felt what every other human being felt. He felt the consequences of sin. 
He felt the weight and the condemnation and the guilt of sin. He felt the putrid sickness and and disease that came because of sin. What did he feel? Was it the displeasure of the Father? No. In fact, right at that moment, Jesus was right in the centre of the Father's will. He was doing exactly what God had called him to do. God was never more pleased with the Son than at the cross. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, if God said that before Jesus even started ministry, imagine how God felt when Jesus is hanging on the cross, fulfilling the, the, the will of God completely. Now, on the cross, as Jesus redeemed mankind by taking all sin, he was right in the center of God's pleasure. God was pleased with the Son. And God wasn't turning away from him in some sense of displeasure or anger. No, he was focused on the Son. If, if God turned away, uh, if, if he did, it was not a turning away in displeasure or anger or abandonment. If God turned away, it would have only been because he, he couldn't bear to see his son suffering the way he was. And so why did Jesus utter those words? Um, well, one, he was drawing people's attention to the fact that he was the Messiah. But, all, but also for several hours, he's, he's hanging on that cross. He's carrying all of mankind's sin and he felt like Adam. He felt like every other man, that he was, he felt in his humanness, he felt unworthy to look upon God. He felt in his humanness like he was abandoned, but it wasn't from God's side. Look at a few other verses in Psalm 22. Verse 4 says, In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted in you and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. And this is the real clincher for me. Verse 24 of Psalm 22. For those who still think God turned away from God. Verse 24 says this. God turned away from Jesus, rather. Verse 24 says this. He has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Though God never abandoned Jesus, he did not turn away in rejection and disgust. He was always looking at Jesus. And I just don't know how some teachers have missed that, that in this very psalm, which Jesus quotes, it explicitly states that God did not turn his face from Jesus. He didn't forsake him in his day of trouble, but he delivered him from the grave. And not only did he deliver him from, from, from deliver his son, but the promise is there that every person who believes in Jesus would be completely, totally delivered. But that's, that's the good news of the gospel. So God always looks. He never turns away. And he always laughs. Second thing is that sin is not more powerful than Jesus. I want you to think about that. If God cannot look at sin, what does that say about Jesus? 
See, Jesus was fully human, but Jesus was also always fully God. And if we can't, if we if we say that God cannot look at sin, then we dis, dishonor the divinity of Jesus Christ, and that for me creates a whole lot of serious theological problems. We shouldn't think that God the Father is more holy than Jesus because that makes Jesus less than God. He was fully God, fully man. Because because if if we believe this this thing, God couldn't bear to look at Jesus because of of sin. It, It effectively means that Jesus could look upon sin, but the Father couldn't. It means the Father is actually weak that he couldn't look upon sin, and yet Jesus could somehow bear it. No, Jesus was always fully God. He was restraining the use of his divine abilities while he was on earth, but that didn't change the fact that he was always fully God, fully pure and perfectly holy. And and, and in that holiness, he had the capacity to take on all sin. He takes on all sin upon himself. And then in his holiness and power, he overcomes it. And the whole time God was watching and loving the son. Folks, if, if, if sin was more powerful than Jesus, if it was strong enough to come away, then Jesus could never have risen victorious over sin and death. Rejection would have been an unjust act from a just God. It's impossible. Couldn't happen. Jesus became sin for us, but he was still the perfect son of God. He never sinned. In fact, the Roman soldier who was charged with executing Jesus at the end said, this truly was a righteous man. Truly, this is the son of God. And I think those implications need to be honored. Think about it. Um, If you were a judge and your own innocent son somehow valiantly stepped forward at a trial to take a criminal's punishment upon himself, would you be angry with that per- with that son? Would you reject him? No, and neither did God. What was the real value in the cross? It, it, it wasn't just that a righteous man had died. It was the fact that the son of God had died. Remember, it was Jesus' body that died not his spirit. His spirit was always connected with the Father, always connected with the Holy Spirit, the three in one. And that's a very important point, and it brings me to point number three, is this, is that sin cannot split the Trinity. If God turned away and abandoned Jesus then sin had the power to split the Trinity. It, it, it means that sin had the power to cause Jesus to stop being God and for the Trinity to dissolve. It means sin is more powerful than the perfect unity of Now, can that possibly happen? No. No matter how horrific sin is, It has no power to split the Trinity. 
the Trinity could never turn in against itself. And, and, and in fact, if that were possible, you no longer have the God of the Bible. You no longer have one God in three persons. You have three gods, and that's tritheism or that's polytheism. Um, so we have one God expressing three persons, the person, three personalities, but always one. And so if God could somehow abandon Jesus, reject him because of sin, then Jesus would now be less than God. The Trinity would be split apart. And if that could possibly happen, then God himself would completely, totally cease to exist. He would implode in on himself in a vortex of nothingness. In fact, you and I would immediately cease to exist because Hebrews chapter 1 says that he sustains all things. Who? God, three in one. Colossians 1 says he holds all things together. Folks, if the Trinity could be split apart, if the Trinity could be separated, if God somehow abandoned Jesus even for a second, then everything would be split apart and we would cease to exist. The universe would dissolve. Remember, remember Jesus' words on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. Jesus was intimately connected to his Father all the time, the whole way through. He says, at, at the end, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So right to the end, there was this unity of the Trinity. Jesus knew the Father was with him, watching him, strengthening him. Um, rather than sin breaking apart the most holy and unified relationship in the universe, sin was shattered and the enemy was spectacularly, spectacularly defeated at the cross. So that brings me to my final point. And we're going to finish early today, I think. Um, and it says, all three persons of the Trinity, I want you to get this, all three persons of the Trinity experienced the cross because they were totally united in action. In other words, all three persons of the Trinity shared in the sufferings of the cross. Whether you consider a creation um, or the ministry of Jesus on the earth or redemption or the, the, the work of the cross, uh, Pentecost or the end of time, all three divine persons participate in the work of the other persons. For example, the Spirit never operates independently from the Father and the Son. And so when Jesus died on the cross, the Spirit and the Father participated in the suffering with him. Jesus was never alone. Uh, we read this earlier, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, says God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Where was God? In Christ. When, when, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples and he, he says, I and the Father are one. When they ask him, Jesus, show us the Father. And I'm in the Father. And that was Jesus' prayer in John 17. He says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I in them and you in me. 
there was this oneness, there's this perfect unity that's taking place. Folk, Jesus never suffered alone. The Trinity in all its fullness was involved together. There was no separation. There was no turning away. There was no abandonment. There was no rejection. So why does all that, why does all that matter? Why is that very important for people to understand? Because if God could somehow forsake Jesus on the cross, then we can imagine that it would be possible for God to forsake us when we mess up. And yet the promise of God to you and I is that, is that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Like he's clothed us with his righteousness. He has qualified us forevermore. God never rejected Jesus and he will never reject you. That's why the writer to the Hebrews is able to write in Hebrews 10, um, he says, where sins have been forgiven, there's no need for any more sacrifice. Like your continual confession of your sin, you're begging God to forgive you. But all that is is, is, our, is an effort of a, is a pathetic effort of a human sacrifice to try and get forgiven. But we were forgiven through the cross because of Jesus' sacrifice. And so he goes on in verse 19, Hebrews 10, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. This is the new living way that Christ has opened up for us through the sacred curtain by means of his death for us. And since we have a great high priest who rules over us, let us go right into the presence of God with true hearts fully trusting him. For our evil consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water without wavering, get that, without wavering, let us hold tight to the hope to the hope we say we have for God can be trusted to keep his promise. So what implication does all this have for us? Well, Paul says much, much in every way. It shows the character of God. Um, it shows what he's truly like, that we um, who couldn't bear to look upon a holy God can now and we can live with his favour upon us. We can live with the confidence that we can actually enter into his presence because of the shed blood of Jesus. Jesus was the only sinless man, the only one who had the right to enter the presence of God. We couldn't, we couldn't, even though we may have desired to, but now because of his shed blood, because of his sacrifice, we can enter and we can come boldly before his throne. Perhaps you felt rejected by God. Maybe you felt afraid to come near a holy God. Maybe you've felt times where you felt unworthy or unclean or unholy, that, that God would never want to do anything with you, who would never want to know you. Um, I, I want to encourage you that if you've never put your trust in God to save you, if you, if you don't understand that God, Jesus came to, for, to, to die for your sin, he came so that you could be forgiven and you are forgiven. All you, all you have to do is come to a realisation 
yes, Jesus, I thank you. You have already died for my sin and I, I accept that. I accept you as my saviour. He wants to come and he wants to free you from your fear and your sense of guilt. If you're a Christian and, and you've been struggling with, with the thought that God might one day reject you, I, I want to I just say to you today, put that fear to rest because his promise to you is that he will never reject you. He will never abandon you. you know, if he never abandoned Jesus when Jesus was carrying all sin, for the whole world and all the wretchedness and the wickedness and the and the putrid stench of sin and sickness and death. If he never rejected Jesus when he was carrying all of that, he's not going to reject you. And that's the good news of the gospel. And that's the message that we as believers carry. It's the message that we need to make plain to everybody so that they can come to a loving God and receive him. So if you've been battling as a Christian, then I want to say to you, go back to the cross and just see the wonderful way that that Jesus did everything he needed to do for you. See the love of a father. See the sacrifice of Jesus. He did it for you so that we could live totally free. And so Jesus, today we thank you for the incredible sacrifice. Father, we thank you for the incredible display of your love. We thank you that you accept us and you receive us and you your desire is to come and walk with us and make yourself real to us every single day. And so we thank you, Holy Spirit, that we can rely upon you and we can know you and we can experience you. And so my prayer this morning, Lord God, is that right now that in everybody's room that your presence would come and just manifest with them, that you would surround them with your loving arms, with your, 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 with your power, with your glory. Father, I pray that for people who are sick right now, I declare and decree healing power to surge through their bodies, would enter their rooms and just fill that place with your glory and with your anointing and your presence, that sickness and disease would just break off of people that fear and doubt would break off of people, that feelings of guilt and condemnation would just break off of people right now in the name of Jesus. Be free in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, everyone. Wonderful to see you. And I just, I just trust and I, I just really believe that that is, that is a liberating truth today that will set people free. God bless you. 